Small Changes, Big Impact, a DFCM podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Resmovitz. Good morning. We're having another candid COVID conversation with coffee this time with Nadia Ellum. She's a family doctor and anesthetist in Georgetown, Ontario, past president of the Ontario Medical Association, and she does a hell of a lot of everything else from teaching to consulting. And today, we're just going to talk. Let's have some fun. I'm Resmovitz. Is it Resmovitz? Yeah, it's still Resmovitz. I haven't changed it yet. Although my um, father-in-law wanted me to change my name to his name and uh, at, when we were getting married. And um, he said, you don't want Resmovitz. It's too ethnic. And I said, that's exactly why I want that. You know, I, I want that. And the people that don't okay. come to, yeah. So um, he said, but it's so hard to pronounce. I said, I, I know it's hard to pronounce. It's okay. It's okay. So <laughs> people will learn. People learn because they like you and they respect you and they'll learn. And I have to admit, um, I'm very excited about today's podcast. I'm also kind of afraid you're going to get me into trouble, but we'll see. We'll see how things go. I think we're both troublemakers. <laughs> yes, this is I think true. we're both troublemakers. You know, just on the changing name thing, though, it, it strikes me as odd that we expect women to change their name so easily when they get married. But as soon as you ask a man to change his name, forget about it. Interestingly, my husband, when we got married, oh God, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, maybe 12, I don't remember. It must be over 10. My oldest son is 10 years old, so it must be over 10. Um, he never asked me to change my name. One, because Nadia Ma didn't have quite the same ring as Nadia Alam. And two, I didn't want to go through the paperwork. I just flat out refused. <laughs> so I, I am- I not want to go through the paperwork either. <laughs> so exactly. My wife didn't change her name. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of paperwork. Okay, so how are you keeping busy during these extraordinary times? I'm still working. I've still got my day job. Um, as a chauffeur, my, my job, <laughs> my first job as a chauffeur with my kids. So that actually got canceled. We're staying home mostly. So what's your I, day job now? So my day job is working in my family medicine clinic and working as an anesthetist at my local community hospital. And I love, and then also coming home and trying to homeschool my children using Ontario's curriculum. Luckily, their teachers are very forgiving because I'm pretty sure we've missed about half the deadlines already. How many not, kids do you have? Four. You have four it's kids? You know, it didn't seem like that much until we were all shut into the house together. And yeah. now it seems like a lot. <laughs> what age are your kids? My oldest is 10 years old, um, Connor. And then Sully is eight. Isa is six. And Freya is four. Oh, wow. I also have four kids. No way. Tell me about them. Yeah. 10, six, three, and one. And it's busy. And we have a, we live in a small house and I don't, it's, you just pull kids off of each other all the time. Yeah. Really, like I, you know, and you're working as an entertainer right now and as a teacher and as a police person and as a educator and as a parent and as a doctor, it's a lot. It's a lot. It, it's you know? a lot. 
it can be exhausting, but there are moments of brilliance. Tell me what your kids have said that have made you been like, oh, wow. Wow. You know, through this whole coronavirus thing. Well, my kids have told me that my kids have grown up wanting to be all sorts of things. They've wanted to be in turn a Lego master builder. They've wanted to be a soldier. Um, they've wanted to be a zookeeper or a zoologist. Um, they wanted to be all sorts of things. They've now all coalesced and agreed that none of them are going to be doctors because they think it's too dangerous. Wow. However, they are, um, they're very proud of the work I do, but at the same time, it's, you can tell that the anxiety is kind of getting to them. They're, they're worried. They're, they're playing, they're wrestling, they fight all day, every day. They do their homework. They do all the normal kid stuff. And then every once in a while, their anxiety will leak through. They'll wake up with nightmares or they'll hug me tighter before I leave. They particularly get anxious when I'm at the hospital um, for my call shifts because they know that's probably my highest risk. Although I would argue some of the family doctor's offices and the specialist clinics or even some of the community organizations where a lot of allied health providers work, they are probably just as much at risk because of the fact that they have such lack of access to personal protective equipment. Yeah. Right. Tell me they're about gonna, They're going to be faced with patients who have COVID-19 and they may not know it and they may catch it. And I mean, this is what we saw happen with long-term care homes all around the province, right? Yeah. So are you doing anything specifically to try to facilitate uh, PPE deliveries to anyone? You seem like the type of person that would, you know, advocate for, you know, other people. Just getting to know you over the last, like, few weeks and stuff like that. You just strike me <laughs> as that type of person. I am very dependent on my community to be functional. I am very dependent on the midwives being able to do their work, just like the obstetricians being able to do their work. I'm very dependent on my patients being able to get medications from their pharmacy, their local pharmacies. I'm very dependent on home care being able to function. And so, yeah, about um, early March, I started noticing how more and more community organizations were talking about how they don't have masks, gowns, gloves, the usual basic PPE. And so I started a group in Halton Hills. Um, I started a group in Milton. I started a group in Oakville. So all of Halton region to start doing drives for community drives for PPE. We asked the community to make donations. We didn't want money. We just wanted any extra spare masks, gloves, gowns. So the dentists who had closed their offices right now, they helped um, a local glove factory in Acton turned out boxes of gloves for us. So we're set in that respect. 350 approximately sewers in Halton Hills banded together and started sewing us gowns. All the fabric stores have closed. So they're using bed sheets where we're sound of musicking this shit. <laughs> we're, I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> we're, we're being inspired by sound of music to make gowns and personal protective equipment like scrub caps and all that out of people's bed sheets. And so I'm touched that someone's taken their six-year-old Spider-Man sheets and made a gown that's going to protect me. It's, it's kind. And then we also got in touch with a lot of the 3D printer hobbyists and makers in our community. 
and they turned out face shields. And so this is all being spread out through the community. Last week I did drop-offs in Halton Hills. The Milton Docks are doing their own run. And then this week, last night, I did um, a pickup with the Oakville Docks. Um, and we've supplied shelters, we've supplied retirement homes for long-term care facilities. The government's trying to supply them in a more timely and effective way. But a lot of the families for palliative care patients they kind of need PPE as well when they come to visit. And so we supplied that for them as well. It's, it's been very, it's been very what, sir? It's been satisfying. Of course. But I mean, Jeremy, you are involved with conquer COVID-19. You, you know how unsustainable this is. We, we need the global supply chains to open up. We, We can't keep mining the community for stuff like it's just it's not really possible to sustain this for long especially as more community organizations start ramping up their businesses especially as people start going back to work they're going to need ppe too to prevent transmission to one another to press prevent cross-contamination it, it's a bit scary you know what it is really scary um we're going to see a second wave um And I think it's because people don't realize that flatten the curve doesn't mean eliminate the curve. Flatten the curve means, you know, reduce the impact on the hospitals. It's been very acute care centric and we lost focus of the whole population. I think um, in that when we resume, people are clamoring to resume their activities and this thing will spread again. I just yeah. heard this morning that there's a chance, there's a, there's a really big chance that um, first infection doesn't necessarily mean protection against second infection, right? That it will, it, the antibodies actually don't mean that you're going to be able to uh, resist a second infection, which, which scares me a lot that this thing is, is really, really, really deadly um, for, for those most at risk, obviously. Right. I'm not talking about, you know, because most of the population recovers. Yes. We're not, right. We're not talking. This is 100 percent mortality here. But but what we're seeing is that people are not listening to the or heeding the advice to to limit contact. Um, I was driving home yesterday. I, I see groups of people playing on the street, like kids playing on the street. You know, it's just a matter of time before you open up the, uh, the doors and the kids start playing together and then they bring it home and they give it to their parents and the parents go do a drop off at their parents' house for groceries. And then we're back to where we started, but it's an inevitability, I think. And the problem is, is that doing the, what you said, the drop offs and the, the drives are not sustainable. Uh, we've been doing this for six weeks. Um, it is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. Um, you're just on all the time. There's another email. There's something else to check. There's trying to give permission to all these people to, to distribute PPE. And how do you do it in an ethical way? And, um, and so, you know what? If I, I can just stand on a soapbox here for one second, um, I realized something. So a few weeks ago, we were challenged with coming up with an ethical uh, framework for distribution because we're working with the OMA right now at Conquer COVID-19 and we're trying to come up with an, 
um, ethical framework for distribution. And you know, the words like equitability get thrown around. And how do you create an equitable framework for distribution? And I'm going to tell you right now, it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible without information to do an equitable distribution. What we came up with was an, uh, in a, a distribution that was based on equality, which is not the same as equitability. But I think you, if you can do, I think this is what, what needs to happen. I think we need a two-stage process. One, we recognize the supply chains are completely disrupted. And so we need a bridge. And that's what Conquer COVID-19 is doing. That's what you're doing with your group to try and bridge these groups that want to continue seeing patients and keep helping people so that they're protected when they go and do that. And, and so that's an equality. We're trying to give as much to everybody, but it's the same amount. So it's an equality-based distribution. The equitability will come when people share what they have with people that don't have. We need to share. The message has to get out that you're gonna have to share with your colleagues who wanna go to work at the bank, with your colleagues who wanna work at the, who are working at the grocery stores, with your colleagues, with the people in your community. We need to share our uh, personal protective equipment because when are we going to have the kids play together again? When are we going to have the parks reopen? When are who's going to go to a concert into a you know and go moshing? Right? I know that's like that's your biggest thing is moshing. That's like you know Nadia's thing is getting mosh pit. I know you. I did. I did. Oh my god! It was so much fun. I know. You're totally a mosh pit person because you like to get in there and get your hands dirty and experience it and then you get out. And here's, when are you going moshing again? You know, you're not for a while. And so I just saw last night a uh, text from a group that I'm on of dentists actually, friends of mine are dentists, boxes of uh, packages of 50 masks are going for, um, uh, what are they? They're going for a hundred dollars. Um, yeah, a hundred dollars a pack. They're two dollars a mask now. That's insane. Yeah, that is insane. I, I heard yeah. the same thing. Um, it was I forgot the name of the home care agency, but they're one of the biggest home care agencies for Halton. There's Bayshore, Von, Saint Elizabeth. This one starts with an A. I'm so bad. See, this is one of the pieces of information that have fallen out of my head. Now, admittedly, I've never been good with names to begin with. Um, but every once in a while, something bubbles up and I surprise myself and, and feel like a genius for like five seconds. And um, in any case, they were saying that they were looking for isolation gowns. And, and we spoke to them uh, and my group spoke to them and we were like, you know, you, you really got to consider switching to reusable cloth gowns because these isolation gowns are, are like diamonds now. You, you can't find them. And she's like, I know they used to be 50 cents. Now they're eight bucks a pop for yeah. one single use gowns that maybe you can use for one patient. And I was like, you've got to change your business model. The world is the world. This is it. This is our new reality. We're not going to be able to afford some of these PPE, like especially as funding begins to dwindle and, 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 as our economy struggles to recover, this problem isn't going away anytime soon. We've all got to be thinking out of the box. Yeah. It's interesting. About 200 years ago, people didn't even wash their hands between surgeries. Mm -hmm. Right? And now 
you're spending $8 on a reusable gown. We've come a long way, but it looks like we're going to regress a little bit. You know, I, I went back and I started wearing my lab coat again, which I can wash. Um, you know, it's for contact precautions. It's for contact. We need to remember, we really need a lesson again in inf infection prevention and control. It's for contact precautions. Yes, right? it is. Your clothes yeah. are not going to transmit. Like, yeah, droplets can fall on you, but that's, it's contact. You take off the lab coat, you take it off. You wash it, call it a day. You do your best, right? When what people are going to the liquor store, they're not wearing lab coats and disposable gowns, and yet people are still buying liquor, and they're going to the grocery store, and the grocers are not wearing lab coats. So I don't understand why, you know, I know the risk is there, but, like, you got you to gotta still be able to do your best. Yep. This is, I think, one of the best explanations I found for – um, contact precautions. And it's a meme that starts with, do face masks make sense? And then they said, let's explain it for dummies. If we all run around naked and someone pees on you, you get wet right away. If you are wearing pants, some pee will get through, but not as much. So you are better protected. But if the guy who pees also is wearing pants, the pee stays with him and you do not get wet. And I was like, somehow terms it just seems to make a lot more sense now what if you rub <laughs> up against each other <laughs> please don't go rubbing up against people on the street <laughs> yeah that's called it's, it's a psychiatric disease called frauderism where people <laughs> rub up against you for no reason i mean they have a reason but anyway useless facts you learn in medical school that don't tend to come up again until you podcast with nadia that's your and new podcast by the way surprisingly they stay in your head yeah podcast with nadia uh we're gonna do that over and over again it's fun okay so tell me do you have any like interesting stories from the front line that you'd like to uh talk about today so um i found one of the stories that i'm struggling with it's a uh, she's she's a 90 year old lady she's She's like a light. She is beautiful and smart and engaging. She's a total extrovert. She lives in one of the local retirement homes and, and she's feisty. So I, I fell in love with her right off the bat when she became my patient. She became my patient maybe about half a year ago, so about maybe six months or so. So we haven't known each other very long. She before COVID-19 hit, she and I were talking and, and I had noticed that sometimes our conversations would get repetitive. And while you kind of expect that as people get older, these conversations were becoming very repetitive. She was forgetting everything I said between one conversation to the next. Even if I wrote it down, even if I emailed it to her, even if I repeated it myself three or four times in the same conversation and then started the next conversation by reminding her by the end of the conversation, she was forgetting again. So her short-term memory was an issue. You know where I'm going with this. She, we tested her and she, she has dementia. Oh, and, I thought you were going with, it was very, it was like talking to your husband. <laughs> kind of is actually, although his memory is more selective. It's not so much everything. It is deliberate. Hers was, you know, unintentional. <laughs> I get it. Okay. And so this was a new diagnosis. 
COVID-19 hit, she became, the retirement home went on lockdown because there was an outbreak there, particularly among asymptomatic carriers. That's how they found out the outbreak was spreading. Um, so everybody got locked into their own rooms, got isolated into their own rooms. As an extrovert, she was in tears. She was just devastated. She would call me sobbing because she couldn't deal with the isolation or the loneliness. Um, sure, there's FaceTime. Sure, there's phones. But it's not the same as in-person contact. And I found it really challenging because... Normally I would do a house call. I would sit down with her. I would talk to her. And in this instance, where I am at high risk, I probably carry a higher viral load without even knowing my risk of transmission is higher. And so I'm trying to avoid making house calls. I'm trying to avoid seeing my patients, particularly the, the frail ones or the elderly ones or the complex ones, unless it's totally necessary. Um, and so it was hard to comfort her because talking on the phone or talk, even talking on FaceTime, it's just not the same as being there in person. I can't hold her hand. I can't hug her. I can't, like she can't even see most of my face because I'm in clinic and I was wearing a mask that day. So anyways, she ended up moving in with her son and her daughter-in-law to try and, and get away from the outbreak She's, she's followed the isolation measures and all of that. But again, the family's struggling because they've got a patient whose memory is sick. They've got a loved one whose memory is significantly impaired and they don't know how to deal with it. And holding a family conversation, holding a group conversation about this, it's, it's beyond tough. Like I, I can't even be polite and call it challenging. It's just, it's, friggin' impossible. I, I don't feel, I feel like a phone jockey. I don't feel like a real doctor. And that frustrates me because this, this is part of my job and I can't do it just because of the pandemic. Yeah. It's been really tough. Um, you know, I cover a retirement home also, and, um, I've had patients who expressing thoughts of uh, suicide. Uh, mm -hmm. There's an outbreak there. They, um, they don't like being isolated. I never put it into context of extrovert versus introvert, but I think probably now that I reflect back on it, this one patient um, is probably an extrovert and she is craving people, right? She gets her energy from people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she doesn't know how to get her energy from being isolated. You know, I saw one of those memes on the internet. I think it's the interweb, internet, interpol. And um, it said, introverts, please call your extroverts friends. They don't know what to do. Yep. They don't. They really don't know what it's like to be isolated, right? Because it's really hard for people who are extroverted. And so, you know, I had to, I had to counsel this one patient who wanted to, who, who said, I'm just going to go outside and stand in front of a streetcar and get hit and just end this already. Oh my God. Yeah. And, um, I had to think of something to like tell her to try and, you know, talk her off the cliff, if you will. And so I told her now, again, she's one of those individuals that has some cognitive impairment. And I told her, I said, you know, the streetcars can stop, right? <laughs> and she's like, what? 
I said, like, you're, you want to stand in front of a streetcar, but they stop. Like, they have brakes. They'll stop. They won't hit you. And she said, oh. And I said, yeah, you're going to have to come up with a better plan, I think. She said, well, do you have any ideas? I said, you know, I'm fresh out. But why don't you give me a week and I'll think about it. And uh, I'll get back to you next week on how you can, um, you know, some other ways that you can, you know, take care of yourself. I'd appreciate that. No problem. I'll pre right. It's like you, you can obviously see the insight just isn't there. Right. She's yeah. just not thinking fully what's going on. And I saw her, you know, a few days ago and I said, how are you? And I've given her a medication. She was having trouble sleeping. So I gave her a medication um, that would help her sleep. Um, mirtazapine, you know, mm -hmm. using its side effect profile and looking at the fact that maybe she's got some depression um, going on here. Maybe we can use both. And it was interesting to see that um, the nurses at the retirement home came and gave it to her at seven o'clock. And she said, no, I don't want the pill. I'm not tired. I'm not going to sleep right now. Because I told her it was a sleeping pill. Um, or at least I explained to her, you know, how the pill works um, and that'll help her go to sleep. And so she interpreted that as it's a sleeping pill. And, um, and so <laughs> the nurse came back at 10 and she said, I'm still not tired. I'm not taking that pill. So the woman has refused to take the pill. And so when I saw her this week, I said, so how are you feeling? She's like, I'm great. Okay. <laughs> we'll just call it a day. Uh, you know, there's so much richness to these people's, to the people that we see. Um, and it's just so interesting. I really wish I'd cataloged a lot of the stories in the last uh, six weeks, but um, as much as you say you, you haven't been doctoring, you don't feel like a doctor, uh, you've been busy doctoring. Um, you know, what is doctoring? It's caring for people. Just because the medium is different doesn't mean that you're doing it any less. You're just, it's a difference that, that you're just not used to probably. Um, that's, that's fair. I'm one of those people who, who enjoys the face-to-face, -face, who derives pleasure from it. But I do have to say, it's the lesson that's driven home to me with virtual care, particularly care on the telephone, is you don't know what you don't know. So I had another patient, and he, was, he became my patient because he had no family doctor, um, his previous family doctor retired just before retiring. His, his family doctor um, tried to treat his reflux disease, put him on Pantalock, right? A common medication for reflux disease. And, uh, and then sent him on his way and said, you know, I'll try and provide care for you for about six more weeks, but you've got to try and find a family doctor. Trying to find a family doctor is trying to find a unicorn in Ontario now. But he found that his reflux got worse and worse despite Pantalock and he went to Emerge. Um, he was referred to one of the surgeons in town, ended up getting a gastroscopy and was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And, and it's sad. It, it's horrible. That's how he became my patient. She called in a favor, asked me to take him. And I said, yes, of course, he, he needs a family doctor. The pandemic hit. Just before it hit, he was seeing his oncologist. This oncologist just did a routine chest x-ray on him. Patient seemed fine. And the oncologist found um, signs of pneumonia on the chest x-ray. But the patient had no fever. The patient had no shortness of breath, which 
to be honest, I don't find surprising because he's on Tylenol a thousand milligrams four times a day. So if he has a fever, it's being treated and he's on high dose opioids for his pain. So he's not going to feel short of breath. He might look short of breath, but he's not going to feel it. And so he won't realize he, he won't be able to show the classic symptoms of pneumonia. So I'm, I'm grateful that his oncologist did the chest X-ray, found the pneumonia, started treating him. I followed up with him the following week to check up on him and make sure his pain was controlled. And as I was looking through the oncologist's notes, I was like, this guy isn't going to feel short of breath. The oncologist had told him, given him strict instructions, if you feel more short of breath, if your symptoms worsen, or if you start feeling symptoms, go to the emergency department. I was talking to him on the phone and I don't know what it was. I, I still don't. Like I've, I've thought back to our conversation multiple times and I don't know what it was that made me switch from just talking on the cell phone, on speakerphone with him and his wife to FaceTime. But we switched to FaceTime and you could see he was in full on impending respiratory failure. He was struggling to breathe. His nostrils were flaring. You could see in drawing, all of that. And he was completely insensate to it because of the high dose opioids. And so I sent him to the emergency department. His thoracic surgeon and his oncologist um, helped save his life. But it really drove home the lesson. The phone is great for certain things. But you do risk not knowing what you're missing. You, you risk missing all of the other subtle cues. If she, he had come into the office, I would have seen right away that he was in respiratory distress, um, that he was working really hard to breathe. Um, you can't always see that on the phone. And so you miss clues like that, right? You, being a doctor, it's not just about the problem the patient comes in with or about the issue of the day it's everything else their their body language their their posture their the way they walk into the office um the way they're breathing you know what their whether their pupils are dilated or not all of those give you clues as to what's going on in the body and you that is the piece that i find missing in virtual care i think there's no putting this genie back in the bottle. Virtual care, it, it's been adopted for a ton of medical care now. We are not going back. It's very convenient for some patients. It's very helpful in certain instances. But I think at some point when we start finding a new normal, we're going to have to rebalance how much virtual care we do and what we do it for and be very aware of the risks that, again, we, we don't know what we don't know. So this is going to be one of those stories where I started with when I was in residency. Um, <laughs> you know, it starts in medical school and you start hearing the phrase, you know, lay eyes on the patient. Yeah. Um, and then in residency, I remember working at the long-term care facility of the rotation in long-term care. And um, I got, I, I think somebody actually got upset with me that I went in to see a patient at two o'clock in the morning. And I think they were uh, hoping that I would, um, not hoping, but I think they thought I was trying to game the system by going in after 12 o'clock, because the rules were if you went in after 12, you didn't have to go in the next day. 
right? Uh, okay. Yeah. Do you, know, do you know these? Uh, they're called payroll rules. They're there to protect the residents from overwork. But at the end of the day, the work has to get done, right? Like, yeah. And so at two o'clock in the morning, I got a call and uh, I went in. And my wife said, why are you going in? Why don't you just phone it in? And I said, not comfortable. Just not, it's, you know, it's that feeling that you get that you're just not, and every doctor is different. And every doctor takes risks. And every doctor has their own tolerance, um, risk tolerance level, right? How much mm -hmm. they're willing to risk. And I wasn't willing to risk. And so I went in and I said, you know, it's, it's important to lay eyes on the patient. Because even if the numbers, we don't treat numbers, we treat people. And you have to look at the person and not just numbers. So I agree with you. Um, I learned that lesson early, early in my medical pr uh, career. You got to lay eyes on the patient. It is so important to get a full picture of what's going on because that's the pattern, right? The role of the family doctor, I know most of the stuff we do is chronic care. <laughs> it is, it's chronic care. But what is it? It's recognizing patterns, you know, when patterns are out of step. So when their gait is off a little bit, when their speech is off a little bit, when the yeah. words they're using are off a little bit, when they're perseverating, right? Um, this, this is what we're there for, to help you know, pick off those things right when they're just coming up at the top that we can get the care that's necessary. I mean, that's the ideal. Unfortunately, during pandemic times where uh, the question is, are you willing to put yourself at risk um, you know, to save one patient? And most of the times the answer is yes. The question is when you keep doing it, you know, this is a, stat, uh, a statistical question. Um, is it an independent uh, variable or a dependent variable? Are, when you go to each patient, is there an independent risk with each patient? Like when you flip a coin, mm -hmm. it's 50? Or is there a cumulative effect of seeing every patient? So when you go to the first patient and then you go to the second patient, do you, is it a summative risk because you've now increased the risk to the second patient by seeing the first patient and it's probably the summative risk the more patients you see the patient at the end of the day has a greater risk of contracting whatever you got from the first you know 49 patients you know so it, there's a risk and you're trying to do your best and unfortunately we don't have a system that says put all of your most vulnerable at the beginning of the day and your least vulnerable at the end of the day, because we haven't figured that system out yet. Right now we've been doing what's convenient for us usually, right? Like when we book patients, it's more about trying to balance our convenience and the patient's convenience, you know, the demand for phone calls, um, that when it's convenient for them to do a, a visit. We're not a grocery store. And so it's not like we're just open. Um, we're also doing a lot of stuff. So it's really hard to take into effect, uh, into account all the variables that are, are necessary to really create an equitable system where we can care for our patients. And sometimes patients themselves, like a lot of, a significant portion of my day is for patients who have self-initiated a visit for some reason. They may not realize how serious something is either. And that could be for a number of different reasons. It could be from simply not knowing all the way to full-on denial, right? I, I've had patients who, I had a, a woman once come in with her child and for a well baby check. My nurse started off the well baby check by doing the height, weight, um, that sort of thing. 
and going over some of the education pieces. And then I came in and there was something about the woman, how she was holding herself. And, and I couldn't put my finger on it. She kept saying she was fine. And, and I didn't want to let her go. So I brought her into the office by herself, apart from away from the nurse. And I said, you know, something's going on. I can tell something's going on. Tell me what's going on. Maybe I can help. And if nothing else, at least you get it off your chest. It might be nothing. It might be something. She burst into tears. She was suicidal. Her husband was violent towards her. Um, a simple 20-minute well baby check ended up having counseling added onto it. She, she was in denial with how serious it was. And, and it's, and I get it. Um, patients who face domestic violence, patients who are struggling with mental illness, there's, there's a lot of stigma and safety issues around that. And they may not want to disclose what they're doing, what they're going through, just because, um, just out of fear of how it'll be received, of what it will say about them, of what it will do to them. And so I, I, I would add that in some ways, we, we kind of are like grocery stores in the sense we don't know who's going to walk through our door. We don't know who's going to bring a problem that looks on the surface simple and then turns out to be much more complex. Um, we don't know when a patient will choose to come in. I've had patients whom I've tried to bring in for follow-up visits who've canceled and canceled and canceled and then finally come in and they're florid heart failure at that point or, or something like that. And they've just delayed their care too long because life gets busy. They've got stuff they need to get done. Or their diabetes is out of control because they've been so busy taking care of everybody else and have forgotten to take care of themselves and have put off taking care of themselves. Like it's in that sense, I would argue that we're actually a lot like grocery stores because there's an element of patient choice that you just can't, um, that you have no control over. Okay. So then let me ask you this. When that patient walks in, in florid heart failure, or when uh, their diabetes uh, numbers, their A1C is like 15, um, and you haven't seen them in a while, why do I, I need you to get into my brain here, why do I feel like I did something that was, I just did, I, I did something wrong. Like I feel guilty that I missed something that I was like, how did we not support you? Where did we go wrong? Like, what did I do? I might go and I check. The grocery store clerk doesn't feel like that when I come in and I've run out of eggs. We're not a grocery store. <laughs> All right. So that's because of that level of altruism that you have in you. Physicians, right. medical students, when, you, when you're part of the selection process for medical students, you look for that altruism. Do you? And you do. Like, I think medical schools select for altruism. They select for empathy. And it's not something that you can quantify. Or maybe you can quantify it. I don't know. I, I haven't researched into it. But I think, they can. Um, I, I think it's almost a gut check. 
You see how they connect to you during that interview. You see I'm going to tell you. Yeah. That's you. you. That's you. That's not everybody on the admissions committee. Because you strike me as an empath. You strike me as you have the sixth sense where I'm going to tell you something and tell me if I'm completely off here, but you're really good at making people cry. I know. We smell our own. You know, I got accused of making people cry. You make people cry. I said, I know, it's such a good thing. Crying goes to recognize people's vulnerabilities. It means they can they can they understand that the space is safe. That's great that I make them cry. No, you don't understand. You're making them cry. That's awesome. I made them cry. Fantastic. I'm there to support them. No, you don't understand. Oh, okay. I don't understand. No, I do understand. <laughs> Crying is a good thing. Right? So, yeah, you probably strike me as a... Sorry? It's opening up. Yeah, That's of what... course. It means I've challenged you with something and you care about something. It, obviously, we're, I'm just going right to it. So that's what you strike me as. Somebody that cares, somebody who's empathic enough to understand through an emotional intelligence that crying is a reflection of vulnerability and that it's okay to open up and cry. It means you've actually hit the nail right on the head. Um, and so for you, when you do admissions to medical school and you bring in a medical student, that's what you're looking for because it's what you value. It turns out from my research, years and years of anecdotal research, I have no um, real um, me uh, methodology to support this, but it turns out I think doctors are not all the same. That's what my research shows. People have different values. Some <laughs> don't value crying and don't value this insight, that gut, some of them are not willing to spend the extra 25 minutes because they say, you know what? Something's off here. Let me go exploring. Let me be curious here. I know because I have conversations with people and what the, the end result of the conversation is, oh, I have my consult note done, but before the patient even leaves the room. And how much time do you spend with the patient? I don't know, like three minutes. And I was like, yeah. They said, I don't know how you counsel patients. I said, I don't know how you only spend three minutes with a patient. And that's what makes up our system. That's true. You're, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. So it's I don't think we're great for talking about empathy to the guy who's been researching empathy. That, that was a hidden landmine there, buddy. <laughs> I, I, and I'm just researching it actively, like engaging people in empathetic talks and trying to understand, you know, what makes people tick. And it turns out, um, I think I figured out um, depression. Um, I, I have the I have the solution for depression and anxiety. It's you found the cure. You yeah. got the magic pill. Yeah. All right. Let's hear it. Support. Yeah. Support. Now the question is, what does support look like for you as an individual? Not you specifically, but as an individual with depression and anxiety. If you can figure out how to support these people and figure out where the trauma started. Um, you know, whether it's intergener intergenerational trauma, whether it's physical trauma, domestic abuse, financial, emotional, um, existential trauma that happened that people are not willing to take a risk and try something. That's what you need to, you need to be able to support people in their own journey. It's support. 
That is the cure. And the problem is we, we don't have the resources to support everybody. No, we don't. And we don't have the resources to figure out what triggers one depression as opposed to another. It's so highly individualized, right? I'm, I'm bipolar. I have so much to be grateful for in my life. So much. Like I've got a husband who loves me, kids who are amazing and, and a little smelly. And I've got a house. I've got food. I've got steady income by and large. I am, I am able to do more than my parents were when they immigrated to Canada and struggled to keep us fed and going and all of that. Um, like I, I, my parents could never afford to pay for my education. But by the time I started working, I was able to help pay for my sister's education. Like it, it's, you pay it forward. And, and I look back and, and I think, God, I'm so lucky. I'm lucky that I'm in a position where I can take care of my parents and take care of my family by and large. I'm not in that working poor group that we used to be in. And I can't explain why I get depressed. I just can't. Well, maybe it's for another time between you and I, I can help you figure it out. <laughs> Are you going to be my personal doctor? I've got a really good family doctor. I've got, he's, he's amazing. Oh. Well, they're a couple. They're both amazing. I love them. I'm not offering to be your family doctor. I'm just offering to be your friend. That would and, be nice, Jerry. I'd love that. And support you when you get down because it's possible. And I'm just throwing this out based on the little um, chit chat we had before this started. Um, maybe sometimes you do too much. Just throwing it out there. I do have a hard time saying no, this is true. Right, and so genetically speaking, we, have, we are linked, we are linked. Because I am genetically preconditioned. I have that genetic um, uh, cellular level um, uh, difficulty with this switch, right? Because most of the cellular activities that go on is, is based on a switch of something, a receptor being activated. And it turns out I, my genes code for um, saying yes. I can't say no. I have like, I don't know what it is. Um, I just can't say no. Stretch a bit further, right? You can, sure, you you can also you can spend that half hour helping someone instead of watching TV. You can spend that half hour writing those emails instead of, I don't know, going for a walk. Like you, you find ways to make yourself stretch. Except, like you said, you you run out of those half hours. You, you run out of all that time. One of my friends actually practices saying no with me every month. I think I'm going to ask her to practice saying no with me every week because apparently the monthly lessons are inadequate. So it comes down to training. Yeah. And learning how to say no. And not, it's not learning how to say no, by the way. Everyone's like, you need to learn how to say no. You should learn. I hate being shit on, by the way. That's a recurring theme <laughs> in these podcasts as we talk about being shit on. You should, how many times that have you heard someone say to you, you should learn how to say no. You should say no. You should say no. You know what? You should stop saying should. That's what I think. And let me do my own thing. At, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's not learning how to say no. 
Because if people really took the time to understand you, they would understand it's, it's learning how to say no without feeling guilty afterwards. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, it's not about no. It's about feeling guilt. It's about being programmed to help. It's about values, aligning with your values. And so um, I'm sure we can talk about this for another, you know, 10 hours. Um, but today, why don't we just go with um, let's be friends, let's share, and uh, leave everyone with a smile and a chuckle and say, stay sane, stay safe, and um, keep fighting the fight. Very well said. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to our weekly podcast with Natty Alum. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast was made possible through the support of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Special thanks to Alison Mullen, Brian De Silva, and the whole podcast committee. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.